Philippians 4.14 asks for what is your life? One of the most important questions you can ever ask, right? What is your life? Because God wants your life to reflect his glory. Wants you to be happy. Please, that's what God is all about, a fulfilled life. Jeremiah 24, 6 through 7 verses that we have embraced for this year as a congregation that we pray, I hope you pray every day, and pray it as though you were the one saying it. For I, Lord, you said you will set your eyes on us for good, and you will bring us back to this land, our promised land, and you will build us and not pull us down, and you will plant us and not pluck us up. You should pray that every day of your life because God wants to build your life and not let anything tear it down. And then we've been talking about, since we've, we've spoken about steps in building your dream, about first you have to see it, which is vision, and then you have to say it, which is you've got to speak life over your own circumstance and, and situation. Don't go around speaking death like many people do. Then comes this component where you need God's supernatural help. That's the pray it part. Amen. This praying thing is important. Daniel 11 and 32. The people who know their God. You see that? I've emphasized in capital letters the word know. The people, there is a certain group of people that, are, that will know their God. And they, according to scripture, will be strong and carry out great exploits. Who's going to do great exploits? The people who know their God. Acts 17 and 23, Paul is at Athens. He's waiting on the rest of his missionary entourage to catch up with him. And he's at Morris Hill, which is where the Acropolis is located. I've been there on a number of occasions. Parthenon, it's a beautiful, beautiful place, compelling. Uh, there were this temple on the top of a hill there in Athens, Greece. And, of course, in that day, all of the scholars were there that had been trained in philosophical thought. There were students had been trained in the philosophies of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, uh, others. And they liked to debate. And while Paul is waiting for his missionary group to catch up with him, he's walking through seeing this. And they are worshiping many different gods. And he finds one, and this is what he says, this one particular thing catches his attention and he makes this uses this as his opportunity to preach the gospel and begins by saying for as i was passing through and considering the objects of your worship i even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown god the people who know their god shall be strong and carry out great exploits. But Paul said, there are people here who've built an altar to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I, I proclaim to you. What bothers me about this is even though they were worshiping, it's clear that if they did not know the God that was the object of their worship, there won't be any exploits that are being done according to Daniel. And most of us in this building would like to see God do great things in our lives, but as we have just pointed out, all of that is predicated upon what we know about him. So I want to speak today from this subject, once you know, he will always show. 
Amen. Father, let your words come forth to us today with that unique and exceptional, exceptional force and quality that we call the anointing, which is that extra impartation to speak on the part of the speaker, but even more importantly, it's an extra impartation to receive on the part of the hearer. Let your word be anointed in that way that captures our attention and gives us divine insight, we ask, because it is that insight that we seek for in your name. And everybody said, Amen. Of course, as you are aware, as I pointed out, we're talking about building the dream of your life. We finished the Build the Dream campaign last year, working through the process to begin our new building program. And thank you so much for your faithfulness in giving. Please continue because we are just waiting to get this thing going. Um, some things only manifest themselves through application and effort. Dreams happen to be one of those. Dreams very rarely ever just occur. The problem is, is that not all application and effort is productive. Not all of it is. Most of us have had the experience with spinning our wheels, to use the old familiar expression, meaning we're putting forth a lot of effort, and there's a lot of activity, but there's not a lot being done or accomplished, and um, that is because not all effort and not all application is successful and produces the desired result. Someone has said that practice makes perfect. I've lived long enough to realize that isn't true. In fact, there's now quite a, uh, there are quite a few people who point that out, that it isn't true. We hear people say practice makes perfect. That's incorrect. Perfect practice makes perfect. If you keep practicing the same thing over and over again and there are errors in what you're doing, all you do is more deeply ingrain what is wrong. Amen. And this is why professionals hire coaches. Tiger Woods has a coach. Serena Williams, Venice Williams, they have coaches. Every level of expertise requires the ability on the part of someone to help you see what is being done that might be working against you and make a modification or tweak the program to get to the next level. How do you tweak your life to get God to show up? There are some things you can come to know about him that once you know, he always shows. It's just the way he is. Once you know them, he will always show up. I want to help you to learn how to enlist God's supernatural help in achieving your dream. And certainly one of the most important things with which we can be concerned in this endeavor or even in living life, is knowing the mind of God. Hear what I tell you when I tell you that the mind of God is far more important than the hands of God. The mind of God helps us to understand his ways. The ways of God are not the same thing as the acts of God or the hands of God. Moses knew the ways of God, but the people saw the acts of God. Amen. There is a difference. Most people, including those in this room right now, would seek, and maybe even me more than I realize, 
Most people seek God's hands rather than his mind. However, if you seek to know his ways and you come to know them, you can then align your decisions and actions with them and can therefore predict with great certainty the outcome of whatever events there may be that transpire in your life. That is, once you know his ways, you align with those, the outcome is predetermined. It doesn't mean that you're not going to face some difficulties. It just means you will know in advance they're going to work out all right. Yeah. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are call, the called according to his purpose. Now, the reason I can make that statement is because one of the ways of God is that he is faithful. He is not capricious. He doesn't wake up every morning with a different thought in his mind. He doesn't act one way today and another tomorrow. He is predictable and that he will always act according to his ways. And one of his ways is his faithfulness. Even more importantly, those who know the hands of God rarely ever come to really know the ways of God. And the reason is, is because they do not come into relationship with God. To learn the ways of God requires something that, 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 that experiencing the hands of God doesn't require. You can be a rank uh, unbeliever, a sinner, not know anything about the Lord, get in trouble and call on God and experience the hands of God coming to help you. But to know the ways of God, you have to have intimacy with God. Amen. Those who do not know the ways of God end up living from event to event, or to put it more bluntly, from crisis to crisis. You hear what I just said? They don't call on God with any regularity. They only call on God when they happen to be in trouble or need the help that only God can provide. If you live seeking the hands of God, there is no reason to seek his hands unless there is a need for his hands. And so there's no intimacy, there's no regularity of prayer, and because they don't live according to the divine knowledge of God's ways, they always end up having to rely on divine intervention. Hear what I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with needing and praying for divine intervention. My point is, is that if you have to have it every other week, there's probably something wrong. Amen. There's probably something you're not doing right. If you've got to have divine reversal every other day in your life, and you've got to have God come rescue you at least every week and a half. I would suggest that you might want to think about the road you're going down. Amen. Because it's clear you're not living according to divine knowledge of God's ways. There is a way to move from living from crisis to crisis to having God actually be involved in your life every single day. Amen and to enjoy his divine assistance daily. Amen. But to do so, for God to show up, you've got to know him. Amen. They that know the Lord. And this is why Paul says, it's this unknown God that I want to declare to you. Not challenging your religiosity. I'm not challenging your devotion, your dedication. I'm not challenging your commitment. It's just by, your, by virtue of your own statement, you don't know this God that you're worshiping. Now, I realize they just put this idol up in case they had failed to, to include one, you know. They had a whole 
pantheon of idols they worship. But in case we forgot one, we're going to make an idol to an unknown God. But that just happens to describe what a lot of people worship. They, 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 they're worshiping a God they don't really know. And what we need to understand about God, talking about his ways, is that God is always motivated by purpose. Can somebody say amen? Everything God has ever done, made, everything he will do, everything God asks of us to do has a purpose behind it. We may not see the purpose, but there is one. And the why question in life is extremely important if you wish to understand the reasons that things work a certain way. If you don't know why something works a certain way, you will inevitably fail to receive the maximum amount of benefit that you could have received from that thing. Think about it. If you don't ask the why question and know why it's like this, you can't get as much good out of it as you might have otherwise. As you know, this is a why question. Why do I like Cajun jokes? Because I am one. Amen. And uh, I love telling Cajun jokes because that's my heritage. But what I'm about to tell you right now isn't a joke. It really happened. When oil and natural gas were discovered around Melville, Louisiana some years ago, some of the Cajuns who lived in that area who had been so poor all of their lives suddenly had more money than they knew what to do with. And one of them attended a church there, several of them did actually, that they became very wealthy and uh, oil and natural gas was found on their property. They had been very poor but I used to preach in a church in that area that they attended. And one of these guys with his newfound wealth, after they discovered oil and natural gas on his land, decided to go buy himself a brand new car with every luxury and option that he could find on one. And he went to Baton Rouge, amen. And he bought him, I mean, all the way to Baton Rouge, you know, and came out of them swamps and he went to the dealership and he walked up and bought himself the biggest car, baddest car he could he could get, drove it home. And back in the day, they don't do it much anymore, but back in the day, some of you young folk don't know this, that when folk got a new car, they'd go sh drive around and show all their family and friends. You went to visit relatives you hadn't seen in 15 years, amen. You, you wanted to, hey, how y'all doing? I just happened to be in the neighborhood here, you know, and, and, and notice anything different. Yeah, uh-huh. And so he was driving around to all of his friends, showing them the car he had just bought and his relatives, and he went to visit one of the brothers of the church he was close to, pulled up in front of his house and blew the horn and waited for everybody to come out and admire his new automobile, got out and left the door open, kind of put his elbow up on the roof, and it gleamed in the sun, and it was waxed and beautiful, and I mean, it was a lovely, lovely car. And his friend walked up and said, Shut. He said, do you mind if I done sit in this thing? And he said, no, you go right ahead. Boudreaux, you slide right underneath that, that steering wheel. And Boudreaux got in that car and he adjusted the lever to adjust the steering wheels, one of these that you could tilt. And he dropped it down because it was too high. And when he did, the guy that had bought that car let out a squall. And he said, you done broke my new steering wheel on my new car. What are you doing? And, and 
everybody began to laugh when they explained to him this was one of the options that you got on that car. This lever is so you can tilt the steering wheel and make it fit your body so it's easier for you to drive. And I want you to know that it, the kingdom of God works the same way. Just having the option is not the same thing as enjoying the benefit. Amen. And that's why even like, for example, tithing, there are people that are faithful givers but are not faith-filled givers. And there is a difference. In the kingdom of God, everything is predicated upon faith. And people struggle who are even faithful in their tithing because they're not give, giving from a faith-filled heart. They're doing it because that's what the Bible said, and I'm going to be obedient, and all of that's commendable. But the kingdom of God is predicated upon faith. And we need to realize this about God because some people say, really, what difference does it make? I'll tell you what difference it makes. It's because God is sovereign. And he decides to do a, cer a certain thing a certain way, and once he decides that, he limits his sovereignty by the decision he has just made. Now, that's offensive to some people. So, what do you mean God limits his sovereignty? God is sovereign all the time. No, hear me, hear me out. When once God speaks about a certain situation, makes up his mind, and declares something to be a certain way, from that moment on, he has limited his sovereignty in this regard. It means that if he chose this, he cannot now choose this over here. Uh, let me explain it this way. If he says it's going to rain 40 days and 40 nights, that doesn't mean 39 and 41. You hear him what I'm saying. He's sovereign. He can make it rain as many days as he wants to. But once he says 40 days and 40 nights, you know what it's going to be? 40 days and 40 nights. It won't be 39 and a half or 40 and three quarters. He limits his sovereignty. When I spoke with you a couple of weeks ago, he said Judah will be in captivity 70 years. That means 70 years. Doesn't mean 69 years. Doesn't mean 71 years. It means 70. If he says that he's going to give you a son, as he did in the case of Abraham, he has given up the option then to let Abraham and Sarah be barren. As a sovereign God, they could have remained barren. That could have been his choice. But once he said, I'm going to give you a son, he has obligated himself and surrendered the option of them being barren or just having daughters for that matter. If he said they're going to have a son, they're going to have a son. Amen. God commits himself, and this is also why God is always careful with what he says. Amen. He doesn't speak all the time. God's kind of quiet sometimes. Have you ever noticed that? quietness of God sometimes. God doesn't always talk a lot, not as much as we want him to. You know why? Because once he says something, he knows he's committed and it's got to happen. Amen. It's got to take place. He's obligated himself. And if I can say it like this, he has limited himself to what he has spoken. Once he declared to Abraham, Hebrews 6, 13 and 15, that I'm going to bless you and even swear by himself that he was going to bless Abraham, he had no choice. Abraham could not live without being blessed no matter how hard he tried because God made a predetermined sovereign choice that ruled out any other possibility. Are you hearing what I'm, I'm talking about here? Please, let me hear an amen if you're catching this. 
Now back to this matter of prayer. Why do we pray? And why is it necessary? And how do we go about it and it be effective? Because the truth of the matter is, is that prayer is probably one of the least understood things we do in church. And that is reflected by the fact that when you go to church, Sunday services are full, prayer meetings, <laughs> some of the smallest gatherings you have in a church. Am I, am I telling you the truth right now? Oh, yeah, people will show up for all kind of stuff, but not prayer meeting. And most of them, the reason they don't is because their experience has not made it memorable to them. I'm just talking like it is. Amen. Now, one thing I need to warn you, when you come here, I'm going to be honest about some stuff, okay? And I know you go to other churches and, and they may, oh, prayer, hallelujah. No, they have the same problem everybody else has. Amen. That, I'm just being, being real. There was only one thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them. Did you know that? They never asked him to teach them. And this is amazing because they saw him do some crazy stuff. They saw him walk on water. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him heal lepers. They saw him open blind eyes and stop deaf ears. They saw him break fishes and, and loaves and feed multitudes. But they never asked him to teach them to do any of that. There was only one thing they ever taught him to do, and that is in the Bible in Luke 11 and 1. Now, it came to pass when he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray. Amen. Teach us to pray. Now, if you know the background to this, you will notice that usually Jesus got up early in the morning before the other disciples and went and prayed while they were still sleeping. And he prayed a long time. He prayed a lot. And they woke up, saw him praying, never said anything. And notice they didn't go join him either. <laughs> Amen. They just watched him. And then when they got through, he got through. They said, Lord, teach us to do what you just did. Amen. And uh, you will notice that, that uh, as, I, as I said, Jesus often prayed alone. Even when he would take his disciples, uh, he'd come back and find them sound asleep. Come on, guys. Get, can't you even pray for one hour here? You know, and, and Because their experience was, am I being too real, was like so many of us. And that our prayer experience was not memorable to us. But when Jesus prayed, oh man, they saw some stuff happen. They didn't know what was getting ready to happen. But when he prayed, they knew something was getting ready to break loose. Amen. Unlike their experience or what they saw in the religious folk of the day, when Jesus prayed, stuff got shook up. It was like shaking up a Coke bottle and taking the top off. I mean, it just exploded everywhere. Amen. If we were to hold classes on how to do miracles in the church, I doubt there'd be an available seat for anybody to, to, to there'd be a waiting list for people to sign up and get in. I were to, uh, if we knew how, and I offered classes on how to turn water into wine. I mean, can you imagine that? There'd be a line, or how about this? Break fishes and loaves. Today, Pastor Hurd will teach everybody how to multiply fishes and loaves. I'm going out for that. Amen. I haven't been to church since last Easter, but I'll be there this Sunday. Huh? You know, it, but teach us to pray. 
uh-uh, that, that, that's something else. And I'm not trying to make anybody here feel guilty. I would suggest that the reason they were impressed by Jesus' prayers was because apparently he prayed, number one, in a manner that was different than others in his day prayed, and number two, the outcome was different than when other people prayed. Amen. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the religious people of the day. They prayed. They did. But they didn't believe in miracles. Uh, the, the, the Pharisees did. The Sadducees didn't. They, believed, they didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in, in, uh, in angels. They didn't believe in miracles, nothing. But they prayed. Uh, that is one of the biggest mysteries in the world to me. <laughs> How you can believe that there's no supernatural dimension and still feel the need to pray, I don't understand. Pharisees prayed, but both Pharisees and Sadducees did it to appear to be pious. We look, we're righteous, we're holy, we're godly men. And Jesus didn't pray to, pray to appear to be pious. He prayed for and, and got results. Prayed for and got results. The di disciples said, hmm, we watched you pray. We watched him pray. You prayed to be pious. He prayed and got results. We'll go with him. Thank you. Amen. Teach us how to pray like you pray, Lord. Amen. And um, Jesus' prayers worked. Now, I would contend that one reason they worked is Jesus understood this concept that I'm talking about, that if you know, God always shows. Amen. He shows up where he is known. Those who know the Lord their God will be strong and do exploits. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us very plainly that two things must happen if we are to be successful when we come to God in prayer. We must first believe that he is, see that? And secondly, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This scripture is much more direct and to the point than a casual reading of it might reveal. Because there is not a believer alive who at some point has not had doubts or questions about God. Help me out here. Have you ever had a question about God? Hey, here's one. Why do some get healed and others not? And do you begin to wonder, God, are, are you real? Especially with all of that stuff out there like the Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Lawrence Krauss and others that are militant atheists that are now openly gunning for God and have declared God to be dead and buried by science. I mean, seriously, you begin to, maybe they're right. Not everybody gets healed not everybody, a prayer gets answered. But you see, you still have to climb over that hurdle. Is God real? And one reason that you don't know somebody is real is because you don't know them. Once you come to know somebody, have you ever thought you knew somebody and found out they were not being real with you? And then you learned who the real person was. Oh, there's been many a man or a woman that's been through that kind of a situation. You saw somebody, they looked good, they talked the part, they walked, uh, the, you know what I mean? Just everything looked, but once you got closer, you found out they were not being real. You saw who the real person was. And all of a sudden, you didn't have time for that anymore. I would suggest that one reason people don't understand God is because they haven't seen how real he is. You have to get beyond superficial relationships. Am I talking to anybody right now? 
you've got to get beyond superficiality to be able to get close enough to know what he is like. Because that verse, you must believe that he is, does not just suggest that you must believe he exists. It also suggests that you must believe he is, that is to say, he is who he says he is. This suggests that you've got to give up who you thought he was. I'm really preaching to you right now. You've got to surrender and let go of who you thought he was to embrace who he really is. To those who do that and understand that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, then you know that answers are going to come. Amen. Now, hear what I'm saying because I'm talking about the ways of God. You don't learn the ways of God by just praying for his hands to work in your life. You gotta pray to know who he is. That's the key verse right there that unlocks an understanding of how to have a supernatural prayer life. Those who come to God in prayer is implied, or worship, or anything else for that matter, must first believe that he not only exists, but you've got to believe that he is, or that is to say, he is what he says about himself. A certain, a certain thought about who he is is required. Now, let me explain why that is necessary, because men have many thoughts about God. The Sistine Chapel and, and uh, uh, depicted with Michelangelo's famous paintings is, is enthralling. And one of those is, of course, the creation of man where God in heaven is stretching his finger down, hand down to earth. And Adam is reaching up with his hand and his finger extended to God. And there's this famous gap between hands, these, this little gap that is not quite closed. Most people feel like they're reaching but not quite able to reach to God, not quite able to connect to him. And uh, I like the Westminster Creed that was established in 1646 because what it says is I believe man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Most people have fixed in their mind an image of God that I'm trying to please. Look at that verse. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For most of us, we're like Adam, trying but not quite able to reach. You know, standing on tiptoes, really, really trying. Does that sound like the Westminster Creed says that, that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Most people are not enjoying God because they're trying to please him and the feeling is, the perception is, is that he's not happy. This verse in Hebrews is extremely significant and must be processed for your prayer life to take on any kind of meaning. Let me explain. What is it that actually makes our Father unhappy? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Most of us think he's not pleased because we're not measuring up. We don't have enough faith. Oh, God, help me. We're not praying enough. Oh, God, forgive me. We don't understand enough of the Bible. Oh, God, I'm trying. I'm human, Lord, but you're not pleased. That's their idea of who God is. Let me give you an alternate explanation for this verse. A minister I once preached for, his name is Lonnie, tells the story of how when he was a little boy, he somehow came to believe his parents were very poor and struggling. His parents actually were property owners. They were, 
they were wealthy, they, were, they, were, they, had, they had means, but they were also in ministry. And so when they would preach on Sunday and they would travel from one church to another, of course, as an honorarium and a gift for their ministry, an offering would be received. But put yourself in that little boy's place. And the pastor is up. Now, we want to take a good offering for our guest speaker because he's got a family and he needs an offering. And it costs him money to get here and they're going to travel. And, and this little boy processed all of that to mean daddy and mom are poor. And every church he went, they went to, they had to take up an offering for them. And man, my parents must really be poor. And so it got to the place, Lonnie said, that when they would go to a restaurant, he wouldn't order anything. And if his parents insisted, he'd look at the menu and find the cheapest thing on the menu. And they'd say, son, is everything okay? And he'd say, yeah, I just, I, I don't want much today, dad, mom. And when they would go out and buy clothes for the other kids, no, these, these are good. These are, these are okay. They, they still fit. Toys at Christmas time or birthdays, no, I really don't want anything, you know. And uh, my bike still works from last year. And, and finally, his dad sat him down and said, son, What's the matter that you won't let me do anything I try to do for you? And he talked to him, and finally the boy blurted it out. But, Daddy, I see y'all struggling, and I know you're poor. And his daddy said, what makes you think that? And he said, well, they got to take up an offering for you in every church that we go to. And people are always getting money for you. And I know, I know you love me, Dad, and I, I, Mom, and I know you're trying to do what's best. And he had sisters. And he'd say, but y'all buy for my sisters. I, I, I'm strong. I, and his dad sat down, and Lonnie tells the story to this day. His dad with a broken heart and deeply unhappy and saddened sat down and explained, Son, we've got money. We've got property. They want to honor us because we have sown ministry into their hearts and the word in their hearts. And then he explained in a lesson that Lonnie said he's never forgotten as long as he has lived that has helped him better understand his relationship with his heavenly father. His dad said, son, you don't know how unhappy and how sad I have been because I've wanted to do good things for you because I love you, but you wouldn't let me. That's what that verse means. Without faith, it's impossible for God, our Father, to be pleased. Amen. God's not happy when he sees us living beneath our privilege. God's not happy when he sees you sick and you ought to be well. And God's not happy when he sees you struggling and you ought to be blessed. I'm preaching better than somebody's responding right now. You know why? Because we have this image of God that we haven't surrendered. And when I was in Africa, I mean, uh, India um, this past week, um, you know, I was there a couple of years ago, and some of you re may remember I told a story. It's a true story, but I'll tell it again. In India, they have 330 million gods they worship. They are one of the most spiritually sensitive people in the world. They're always trying to make sure they don't displease one of their gods. Amen. They have a lot of gods. Hindus worship a lot of gods. Extremely religious. But like Paul, they're searching for the one they don't know yet. Amen. The unknown God. And where I was at and the graduation was taking place is right next to a Bengal tiger reserve where wild Bengal tigers live. It's one of the last places on earth 
where they live. And there are villages, and the members of the churches live in that area too. And they've got to pass through that. And they've had encounters, and some of them have been killed by these wild Bengal tigers. And in India, one of the main means of transportation are these little moped kind of things. And you have to be actually pretty well off to have a moped, but they call them tuk-tuks, T-U-K-T-U-K, because they're a little two-cylinder motor, and they go tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk. That, that they named them after their sound. And they can put a platform on the back of that thing and they can load it down. I've seen whole families riding on one little tuk-tuk. It's amazing. And it, it won't go very fast. You can almost outrun it. But I mean, they can get a load on that thing. And the milkman in one of the villages was passing through this Bengal Tiger Reserve on one of these little narrow dirt roads. And a... a a Bengal tiger jumped out with its cub right in front of him. And he slammed on the brakes of that little tuk-tuk, that moped. And he looked at that tiger. And that tiger, when you see one with its cub, you're in trouble because it's got to feed itself and its cub. And it's also extremely protective of their, of their cubs. He knew he was in trouble. In a flash, he knew he couldn't turn that moped around and outrun that thing. Not when you could almost outrun it yourself, you know. A Bengal tiger, no way Jose, like they say. And uh, so he jumped off that thing, threw it at the direction of the tiger, scampered up a tree right next to this, the road where he was at, because it was in the jungle. And to his horror, the Bengal tiger started up the tree right after him. Uh, can you imagine that? And he's climbing this tree, and he gets as far as he can, and that tiger steadily coming up right after him, thinking, McDonald's, I won't be seeing you today. Amen. I've got something better on, on, the, on the limb just ahead of me. And, and that tiger pulls back and is about ready to pounce on this man when that guy's mobile phone goes off in his pocket. True story. Now, everybody there has got a little cheap mobile phone, amen. And, and what's amazing is that it was working in this preserve because my phone wouldn't work in that area. And I got an iPhone, but this guy's little phone, <laughs> amen. This guy's little bitty phone was working. And when that tiger gets ready to pounce, his phone starts ringing. And that tiger stops and looks at that guy, hears that phone ringing. And turns around and jumps down from that tree. Takes its cub back into the jungle. That man has been praying. Oh, I don't know how you figure out which one of 330 million gods to pray to at a time like that. Hey, up there, anybody, you know. Anybody listening, whoever's closest to the phone, answer, please. I really don't care, just anybody. Amen. But that phone starts ringing. And that tiger jumps out of that tree and goes off. That man, after a while, climbs down, gets back on that moped, takes it back home. He, they gather the whole village together, family, friends. They build a little shrine, which is like a miniature temple, and they take his mobile phone and put it inside. Because now Israel does, I mean, now, now India does not have 330 million gods. It has 330 million and one. I thought that was pretty cool. I got to go charge my God in the morning so I can worship him 
is the electricity on. Can you imagine that? People, they're worshiping that. They're still worshiping that phone. People have all kind of images of who God is, is the point that I'm making. And what this verse says is you've got to believe he is. That doesn't just mean he exists. You've got to believe he is a certain something. And it's not left up to us to decide what he is that we must believe. You've got to believe what he is uh, according to the statements he makes about himself. God says of himself, for example, that he's good. Psalms 31 and 19, oh, how great is your goodness. 1 John 4 and 8, God says of himself that he is love. Psalm 717, God says of himself that he is righteous and that means fair. Hebrews 13 and 5, God says of himself that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Romans 8, 28, God says of himself that he will work all things out for our good. Amen. Philippians 4, 13, God says of himself that all things, uh, that we can do all things through Christ. Jeremiah 29 and 11, God says of himself that I have plans to bless you. And you got to believe that he is what he says he is. Amen. Oh, somebody in the building say hallelujah. And I'm just about done. You must not only believe that he is or that he exists. You must believe he is a certain someone that he has certain ways. If you don't know his ways, he doesn't show up. Amen. And you may just be lucky enough that your mobile phone rings at the right time, but trust me, that's not your God. Amen. The God I serve is not a mobile phone, and he doesn't need to be charged every morning to work either. Let me not even get on that. But it's then when you believe he is and that he is a rewarder of those that what? diligently seek him. What does diligent mean? It means constant in effort to accomplish something attentive and persistent in doing anything such as a diligent student or a diligent worker. You've got to work at it. That means you don't just pray whenever there's need for divine reversal based on his ways or divine information as to who he is, you can predicate or position yourself to know the outcome before the event is finished. Amen. And so what you do is you just pray. Amen. Suppose it doesn't happen today. That's all right. I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to be keep right on praying because it's going to happen. And I'm closing with this. We sometimes feel foolish when we do this because we haven't understood what his ways are like. Kind of like having a puppy in your backyard. Anybody have a puppy? Amen. Anybody see some hands? What's the name of your puppy? Roscoe, Roscoe and Rocky. Amen. Anybody else have any puppies? Let me see. Oh, yeah, lots of puppies. Let's take Roscoe, for example. Okay, we go out and we're going to feed Roscoe. And we know Roscoe is out there, but we get in the backyard and guess what? Roscoe is not at that moment manifest. Amen. And we look around. 
where's Roscoe? And you know what? We see a little hole in the fence. Uh-oh. Has Roscoe ever done this? Gotten out, gotten under the fence. Yeah, you're shaking your head. Yeah. Every dog I ever had did the same thing. I don't know if they didn't like me or what it was, but they're always getting out and checking out the neighborhood. I'm just joking with you, but they really do this. And so Roscoe's not in the backyard. And so what you're doing is you start saying well, things like this. Well, there's no Roscoe. There's none. I thought there was a Roscoe, but there's no Roscoe. Because he wasn't here. I'm looking, I'm looking and I, I can't see him. Roscoe, Roscoe. I see, no answer. And what are, you, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just telling it like it is. There's no Roscoe. That's how some people pray. Just telling it like it is. It's not working. It's not happening. Nothing's manifesting. No, there's a Roscoe. What you got to do is what you always do. How many times has a dog owner ever done this? Here, Roscoe. Come on, help me out. Anybody ever done that? Got out in your, here, Roscoe. Listen to how foolish you are. Roscoe's not here. You're trying to make him come here. Here, Roscoe. Roscoe's there, not here. You get my point? You're calling things at, that are not as though they were. And that's what you do when you know him. He's sovereign. Hear, miracle. I'm calling my miracle into existence so it's not manifest right now. Hear, blessing. Hear, destiny. Hallelujah, somebody. I'm talking to somebody right now that if you can grasp what I'm declaring to you, it can transform your life. Hear, miracle. Hear, healing. And you know what? Roscoe's out there somewhere in the neighborhood. <laughs> and he hears, Hear, Roscoe. That tail gets to wagon. And next thing you know, Roscoe's like, and he comes back home. You call in the manifestation the things that you know are there. And if you know who God is, they who know the Lord will be strong and do exploits. When once God has said it, he's limited himself. If he said it, it's got to be the way he said. There is no alternative. Woo! Oh, somebody stand with me right now. And so, life application points. Do you only pray in times of crisis or need? If so, it is a clue that you are seeking his hands and not to know him. Begin today to build a daily prayer life that is based on intimacy rather than need. Secondly, do you have any mobile phone gods? That is, are you worshiping something and you don't really know what it is? Is it the unknown God? 
maybe you need to tear down some mobile phone temples and get rid of a, exactly 330 million and leave only one. And thirdly, do you believe he will answer when you pray? This is my point. If Roscoe will answer, why did we ever allow anybody make us doubt that God would? Unknown God, when it ought to be the God we know.